0: hey everybody i'm amanda and this is another episode of new york's dark side here we are. I'm back with another new episode. But before I dive in, I just want to give a quick shout out to all of you and say thank you for your patience. I've had a lot going on and I apologize for being late with this episode drop. But also thank you because I got word that New York's Dark Side podcast is number five on Feedspot's Top 10 Best New York Crime Podcast. This whole ride has been amazing. I'm so happy the show is getting so much support. I'm just blown away. Let's keep this going. Help support the show by giving us a follow, by sharing with your friends, your family, your co-workers, random street people. I'm going on a road trip in a couple of weeks. Don't worry, I will be taking you along with me. I have some super fun road trip episodes planned to record on location and it's going to be so much fun. I mentioned that because as I go, I'm planning on plastering flyers promoting the show along the way. So if you're in a rest stop, bathroom between New York and Arizona in the next couple of weeks and you see a flyer for New York's Dark Side, you know I was there too. So let's dive right into today's episode. I'm not going to lie, this is not the episode that I had planned to release next. I have three other episodes in the works, one is Dark History, one is True Crime, and one is a paranormal episode which we haven't done yet with some special guests that will be filming on location in a local to me haunted mansion. There has been some light shed on a case in New York that's making headlines that for some families of the victims may soon bring some closure. Today's episode is on a case that has plagued Long Island for the last few decades, the case of the Gilgo Beach homicides. This case is so heartbreaking, and it's brought me to tears Multiple times in the writing of this episode, my heart goes out to all the victims and their families. I can't imagine the pain and torment that you have been through, and I'm hoping that we're gonna get some closure here. I honestly don't remember hearing about this case until news broke of an arrest of a suspect, in the case Rex Huerman, who is currently in jail without bond and maintaining his innocence. I'm linking all of my sources for this episode in the show notes on the website for this episode as well. On May 1st, 2010, in the early morning hours, a chilling 911 call would be placed by a young woman named Shannon Gilbert. Shannon was a college student who was working as an escort with dreams of becoming a writer and an actress. Shannon had started out escorting for an agency, but she and her driver, Michael Pack, decided to cut out the middleman and go independent after Shannon had booked some clients on Craigslist and found success from it. According to her driver, Pack, in an interview that was... I was able to stream on A&E, their Long Island serial killer episode. Shannon almost didn't take the call that night, but the money had been really too good for her to pass up. She'd been offered $450 for two hours. The client, he was in an area that they were really unfamiliar with, which was why they were hesitant to book this client. But they got into the car and they made a long trip from New Jersey to Long Island. This client lived in a gated community in the Oak Beach Association. The client, Joseph Brewer, met them at the gate, let them in, and led them to his house. Pack waited in the car, and a while later, he was retrieved by Brewer because he said Shannon was freaking out and he wanted her to leave. Pack went into Brewer's house. At this point, Shannon is on the phone with a 911 operator who is struggling to find out where Shannon is calling from. The full 911 call was released in 2022. I was able to listen to it on YouTube, and it's just absolutely haunting. To me, Shannon sounds like she's confused. She doesn't seem to really know what's going on. She pleads with the 911 operator for help, but doesn't seem to know where she is. She ends up telling the operator that she's around Jones Beach, Pack describes Brewer grabbing Shannon and trying to push her out of his home, and said that Shannon freaked out, saying that they were trying to kill her. And you can hear him in the 911 call just telling them to to just leave. Shannon does seem to recognize Pack; she talks to him during the call. But at one point, she asks him, "Why are you doing this to me?" The full 911 call would last for about 23 minutes. There are periods of silence as the 911 operator tries to get Shannon to respond to her. There are periods where Shannon is clearly running down the street. You can hear her feet hitting the pavement on the road. You can hear a lot of background noise and her breathing heavily. There are periods where she's saying, help me, help me, help me, repeatedly. And parts where she's just like blood curdling, screaming. During the call, you can also hear the operator ask, speaking to somebody about the call in the background. And Shannon ends up getting transferred to another operator who also tries to get her to respond. Shannon runs through the community where she is seen by residents. They hear her yelling for help. And she knocks on the door of another residence where Gus Coletti would speak with Shannon and try to get her to come into his home to try to assist her. He ends up being interviewed on that Long Island serial killer documentary episode as well. And he would say that he saw a car following Shannon and he stopped the car. It was being driven by Michael Pack and he told Pack he was going to call police, which he did. In his call, he tells the 911 operator that there was a young woman running around asking for help, and she was being followed by a black Suburban, which matched the car that Michael Pack was driving that night. Shannon would run through the neighborhood again to another home, the home of Barbara Brannon. Brannon would also call 911 that night and report that a young woman was knocking on her door, seemed frightened, and was asking for help. And she says to the 911 operator that she wasn't going to open the door. Brannon sounds scared. Now I'm gonna stop here because as I was reading through the comments on the YouTube video with the 911 call, there's quite a bit of hate towards Barbara for not letting Shannon in, which to a degree I get. But I also think it's unwarranted in my opinion. Let's be real here. Most of us, while we can easily say we would have done something differently had we been Barbara, don't know what we would actually do in that situation. The world is a a freaking scary place anymore. There are cases where people are used to pose as victims to lure good Samaritans into dangerous and fatal situations. But this stuff happens and it's terrifying. Barbara was protecting herself. She was protecting her elderly mother who she talks about in the 911 call. And she has a right to not open her door. There's no guarantee, had she even opened the door, that Shannon would have come into the house. She had already run away from Michael Pack, who she knew. She ran away from Gus, who had opened the door and offered her refuge. So don't hate Barbara. Barbara does call a trusted male neighbor who comes over to look for Shannon. And at that time, there was no trace of Shannon. There was no trace of Michael Pack. They're gone. Police arrived at the scene about 20 minutes after Gus placed his 911 call to them, and they were unable to locate Shannon or Michael Pack. Now, this case starts out wild with the details of the 911 call and Shannon's behavior, but it only gets more wild the more I investigated it. In that Long Island serial killer documentary, Shannon's mother Mary and her sister Cherie would be interviewed. They didn't initially know that Shannon was missing, but they would be contacted by her boyfriend, stating that he hadn't seen her in a few days. They stated that when they tried to file a missing persons report, because Shannon lived in New Jersey, they were sent by the Long Island Police Department to New Jersey to file the report there. I've thankfully never had to file a missing persons report, but it didn't make a lot of sense to me if we know she went missing from Long Island because the family had talked with the boyfriend and they had contacted Michael Pack at this point because they knew he was with her and had heard from him about the events at the Oak Beach Association. Why would they be sent to New Jersey to file the police report. Maybe I'm just being skeptical because of another family's experience trying to file a police report that we'll get to a little later in this episode, but if anyone knows if that's normal procedure, let me know so that I know. What we do know is two days after Shannon disappeared, Shannon's mother Mary would receive a call from a man named Peter Hackett. Dr. Peter Hackett called Mary and said that he ran a home for Wayward Girls and that Shannon was now under his care. Now, at this first phone call, the Gilberts didn't know that Shannon was missing yet. Her boyfriend, who Shannon had met at the escort agency that she was working for, where he worked as a driver would contact Shannon's sister after this and ask if they had seen her. Hackett would call Mary a second time in the days after Shannon's disappearance, but he would later deny making these phone calls and deny having any knowledge of Shannon Gilbert's disappearance. Hackett is just a strange dude. We'll we'll talk more about him in a bit. Now, another thing that was really wild to me is that it would take investigators months to connect Shannon's frantic 911 call to the Oak Beach residents' phone calls. This is, according to one of the sources I read, due to a procedural failure. Because when Shannon initially told the operator that she was around Jones Beach, this statement caused her call to be transferred to another state rather than the local 911 operators that Gus Coletti and Barbara Brannan had spoken to. Gus, the good Samaritan neighbor who had tried to help Shannon and placed one of those 911 calls, would tell the documentary crew of that Long Island serial killer episode that he wasn't questioned about the phone calls and Shannon until August. Shannon went missing in May, four months after the night Shannon disappeared. This case is so frustrating and heartbreaking. After they interviewed Gus and did some things, I'm not sure what police were doing to move Shannon's case forward. Mary Gilbert talks in her interview about launching her own investigation into the clients that her daughter had. She couldn't stop thinking that Shannon was near Oak Beach. Fast forward a bit to December 11th, 2010. We're now over seven months after Shannon went missing. On this day, during a routine training exercise, a Suffolk County police officer, John Malia, and his canine Blue came across human remains on Ocean Parkway. This is about three miles from the Ocean Beach Association. They launched an investigation, they did more searching, and on December 13th, 2010, the remains of three more women would be found. They were not well hidden. It was a very secluded area. They were wrapped in camouflage burlap like hunters use, and they were left above the ground about 500 yards from the roadway. Shannon's family got a phone call saying that they had likely found her body however they would both be relieved and heartbroken to find out that she would end up being ruled out as one of the bodies found during the search as none of the remains had a distinct feature that would have identified them as Shannon. Shannon had a metal plate in her jaw from an assault by her boyfriend. The remains of the four victims would be identified as Megan Waterman, Amber Costello, Melissa Bartholomew, and Maureen Brainerd Barnes, who have become known as the Gilgo Beach Four. And we're going to talk about each of them. Maureen Brainerd Barnes was the first victim of the Gilgo Beach Four. In 2007, Maureen was a young mother just trying to get by. Her sister was interviewed in that Long Island serial killer documentary saying that Maureen had been trying to find work, but she was struggling. She had gotten recruited into the escort service after being contacted by someone on MySpace who was asking her if she wanted to start modeling. And she worked as an escort for a while and was trying to move away from that lifestyle. And that seems to be a very frequent theme as we talk about these victims, they didn't initially start out trying to be an escort they were trying to get away from that lifestyle this is an element that really bothers me listening to and reading about these cases there just seems to be so much emphasis on the fact that these victims worked in the sex industry it's a trade that has been around since the dawn of mankind but they were so much more than that they're people It just seems like all of them were trying to get out of it. Maureen had placed many applications in at a variety of businesses around her home in Norwich, Connecticut, but she wasn't finding any success in landing different employment. A week before her disappearance, she received an eviction notice from her landlord from the apartment she was living in with her two young children. This prompted her to book some clients on Craigslist, and she went to New York to try to earn some money. This is heartbreaking to me and it brings me back to when I was a struggling single mom. It's really hard to get by in those situations. I was hoping I had enough money to pay my bills and sometimes I didn't. It's not an easy world out there and it feels like it's only getting harder. There was a time I remember when I was grocery shopping with my son and he was about like a one and a half, two at the time and I had to put bananas back because I didn't have enough money to cover freaking bananas. It took me a long time to get where I am now and I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunities that I've been given, but I sympathize for these women and I completely understand why these and many other women might choose this path. Some of these women, we'll find out, didn't really choose this path and were potentially being trafficked. They're victims, let's remember that. We know based on Court records now that Maureen was contacted by a burner phone on July 6, 2007, that there were 16 total interactions between Maureen and the burner phone from the 6th to her disappearance on July 9th. On the night of July 9th, 2007, Maureen had booked a client outside of her normal working locations and... After a couple of days of not being able to get into contact with Maureen, her brother and her brother-in-law went to New York and started to look for her. A missing persons report was filed on July 14th. Maureen's sister expressed frustration with the police based on the way they handled her disappearance due to the fact that Maureen was an escort, was a sex worker. Maureen's sister would say that it took them two and a half years, two and a half years, To add Maureen to the missing persons database, Maureen's cell phone pinged in Midtown Manhattan near the 59th Street Bridge around 1156 p.m. on July 9th. On July 12th, we know now that two outbound calls were made to her voicemail from her cell phone near the Long Island Expressway. Melissa Bartholomew was the second victim of the four, but the first set of remains that had been found on December 11th, 2010 melissa hailed from buffalo new york and had moved to new york city with the dream of earning enough money to come back to buffalo and open her own hair salon she started working at a hair salon in the city but after a year into her move she told her family that she had stopped working at the hair salon because it wasn't making her enough money and she had started working at a topless nightclub During her last visit with her family, her family would describe noting a change in her behavior. She just didn't seem like herself. On the night she disappeared, she told her boyfriend she might head out to Long Island and would return in the morning. Her boyfriend would eventually contact family to alert them that she was missing. She hadn't come home. Melissa, during her trip up to see her family and in subsequent phone calls, had confided in her younger sister Amanda that she had been recruited into an escort service. Her parents didn't know that this was the type of work she was doing. That came to their attention after finding out that she had gone missing. She was working for a man who would set up dates for her on Craigslist and this man had put her in the hospital on three different occasions with head trauma and a collapsed lung. This does not sound like she chose this lifestyle. The family tried to file a police report multiple times and they were hung up on, they were treated poorly by the police. This is breaking my heart. They ended up hiring an attorney to help them file the police report. And he had difficulty getting the police to take the report. He would state in that A&E documentary that he had been told that the police wouldn't take missing persons reports for prostitutes until they had been missing for 10 days. I'm sorry, this should not be a thing. This narrative that people in the sex trade, which again has been around since basically the advent of mankind, are lesser people, needs to stop. They are people, they matter, what happens to them matters. A lot of times they're victims and it needs to be investigated just like every other case. This whole thing is so infuriating. Sorry, I'm trying not to cry. So we know now that Melissa had been in contact by a burner phone on July 3rd, 6th, 9th, and 10th in 2009. We know now that Hewerman's wife had traveled to Iceland on July 8th, 2009. Melissa was last seen on July 10th, 2009 in New York City. The burner phone that had contacted Melissa was traced to Massapequa Park in Midtown Manhattan on July 10th. Later that day, Melissa's phone was traced from Midtown Manhattan to Massapequa Park. Her phone was used to check her voicemail on July 11th and 12th. Seven days after Melissa was last seen, her sister Amanda would receive a call from Melissa's cell phone. When she answered it, there was a man on the other end, and she would later report that he sounded white and middle-aged. She spoke with him, asking about Melissa's whereabouts, And these phone calls would be described as violent, where he was describing violent and sexual acts that he had performed. He would call her again on July 23rd, August 5th, August 19th, and August 26th. By the third time he called, police had set up a trace and the trace was coming from the middle of Manhattan near the Port Authority bus terminal on 8th Avenue and also from near Penn Station. Both are very crowded areas. They did have surveillance cameras. They would look at the surveillance footage, but there were so many people around, such big crowds, and most of them had a cell phone to their ear. They really didn't gain much from that at this point. These calls would be important, though, in the arrest that occurred of Rex Hureman on July 13th. And the final phone call to Amanda, the then unidentified man, would tell Amanda that he had killed Melissa and was going to watch her rot. The statement is just so chilling, given that while the bodies were wrapped in burlap, they weren't really hidden in any other manner. They weren't buried. They were just left on top of the ground. And it just makes me wonder if he was coming back to the bodies to visit them later on because we know that is a thing sometimes with serial killers megan waterman was last seen on june 6 2010 in 2009 she was living in portland maine with her family she had a three-year-old daughter at the time of her disappearance who she loved and was described as trying to give her the best of everything her mother was interviewed on the A&E documentary and said that Megan had been approached by a man from New York who had recruited her and started trafficking her for sex. Another man would take over. He is believed to be her boyfriend or a pimp, and she would go with him to New York and he would continue to traffic her there. On June 4, 2010, Heerman's wife traveled to Maryland. On June 5th, Megan was contacted by a newly activated burner phone. There were multiple contacts between Megan and the burner phone on the 5th and 6th of June. Megan was seen on surveillance video leaving the Holiday Inn in Hawpog, New York. She left her phone. She left her purse behind in the room. These would be found later after a missing persons report was filed for her. This is the last known sighting of Megan. The burner phone was traced to Massapequa Park in the vicinity of Hewerman's house around 3.11 a.m. on the day of her disappearance. Heerman's wife would return from Maryland on June 8th. Amber Costello would go missing on September 2nd, 2010. Her sister had started working for an escort service and was finding a lot of success in that. And Amber was really struggling. So this led Amber to also enter the escort service. She decided to work out of Long Island and wanted to work independently of an agency. Amber, posted some ads on Craigslist and she found success in that way so her sister would actually end up joining her and while they were making a lot of money they didn't have the protection and security that an escort service would offer. Unfortunately Amber and her roommate she was living with at the time of her disappearance started getting involved with drugs which her sister said led her to taking some calls that she wouldn't normally take leading to riskier situations. What we know now is that on August 28, 2010, Hiram's wife goes out of town and traveled to New Jersey. On September 1st, Amber would be contacted by a burner phone. The burner phone was traced to West Amityville in Massapequa Park. A short time later, the phone was traced to West Babylon where Amber lived. According to a witness, it was pretty routine for Amber to work with a man who would pretend to be her boyfriend to try to scam clients. The man working with her would would freak out on the client when he came in. On this day, the man that came was described as a large white male, approximately 6'4 to 6'6 in his mid-40s, with dark bushy hair and big oval style 1970s type eyeglasses. The man was driving a first generation Chevy Avalanche which was parked in Amber's driveway when he came. When he was approached by the man pretending to be Amber's boyfriend, he reportedly stated that he was just friends with Amber, and he would call her later, and he left. Later, Amber would receive a text message from the same burner phone that had called her, stating, quote, that was not nice, so do I get credit for next time, end quote. The text came from Massapequa Park. She would be contacted later by the burner phone again, a total of five more times, and she reportedly told the witness that the man wanted to see her again, but he didn't want to come back to the house because of the boyfriend. The burner phone would be traced to Midtown Manhattan, Massapequa Park, and West Babylon again. Amber would leave her home to meet this man. She left her phone behind on September 2, 2010. A witness would state they saw a dark colored truck pass by the house coming from the direction where Amber had walked. Hewerman's wife would return from New Jersey on September 5th. Unfortunately, the remains of the Gilgo Beach Four were not the only remains to be found in this area. On March 29, 2011, remains were found consisting of a skull and hands. These would later be confirmed to be the remains of Jessica Taylor, an escort who had come from Washington DC to New York City a few days prior to her disappearance. Her body, missing the head and hands, had been found on June 26, 2003 in Manorville, New York, by a dog walker near the Long Island Expressway overpass. She had been identified by a tattoo of a red heart with an angel wing that said Remy's angel. The tattoo had been sliced with a knife multiple times by her killer, likely as an attempt to try to hide her identity. But they were able to put it back together and make it identifiable, and an investigator working on her case down in Washington, D.C., recognized it and reported it to the investigators in Long Island. Jessica had last been seen in Manhattan near the Port Authority bus terminal a week before her body was found. The discovery of Jessica Taylor's remains on the Ocean Parkway launched another search, and on April fourth, two 2011, three more sets of remains were discovered. One set belonged to a female toddler that was approximately two years old and is quoted as likely not being Caucasian, according to the Suffolk County site for the Gilgo Beach homicides. A second belonged to a transgender woman that is listed as a John Doe Asian male with poor dental health on the Suffolk County site. There's a composite sketch of her likeness on that site. I'm going to link that in the show notes. She's believed to have been between 17 and 23 years old and had likely been killed 5 to 10 years before her remains were found. One source I found mentioned that the remains were dressed in women's clothing, which is why she's believed to be a transgender woman. And she was likely linked to the sex trade as well, though that's not listed on the Suffolk County site. I found that in another source. The third set was a set of partial remains. Of The partial remains would later be identified as belonging to Valerie Mack. Valerie Mack was an escort working out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Her body had been found in 2000 in Manorville, New York, about a mile from where Jennifer Taylor's body would be found in 2003. Her identity was discovered in 2020 using genetic genealogy. On April 11th, 2011, two more sets of remains were found seven miles west of Gilgo Beach in Nassau County. One set of remains belongs to a Jane Doe called Peaches, who has a tattoo of Peaches on her torso, and her identity is still unknown. But while that is still a fact, she's been linked through DNA to be the mother of the toddler that was found on April 4th. The second set, known as Jane Doe number 7, gave evidence that the killer has likely been active since as early as 1996. Back in 1996, a couple walking through Davis Park on Fire Island came across a pair of severed legs wrapped in plastic. When the sets of remains on Ocean Parkway were discovered, A former police officer who was familiar with the 1996 event called Suffolk County Police and suggested they run a DNA test, and that would ultimately match the legs to the remains of Jane Doe number 7. Just one more quick note before I move on. On the Suffolk County government's website for this case, there's a section labeled as evidence where they have pictures of a leather belt that was found at the scene with the initials of either H.M. or W.H., depending on how you look at the belt. There are also pictures of gold jewelry that were found on the remains of the toddler. After hearing again from police that none of these victims were Shannon, Mary Gilbert did not give up hope. She described, I mentioned this earlier, launching her own investigation. She and her friends would comb through the client list in Shannon's notebooks where they had their contact information written. The clients were a lot of really wealthy and prominent people in Suffolk County. Shannon Gilbert's skeletonized remains would be found some 19 months after she disappeared, not far from the Oak Beach Association, Lying face up in some brackish water. If you watch the movie Lost Girls on Netflix, it focuses heavily on Shannon Gilbert's case. And it really focuses in on Peter Hackett being the perpetrator for Shannon. I mentioned earlier he's a strange guy, and there's some speculation on the way the case was handled that led to online speculation regarding police cover up and flawed investigation. I'll get to that in a little bit as well. According to one source, Peter Hackett used to work for the Suffolk County Police Department, but would testify under oath in this investigation that he was fired from that position because he was using a work-issued cell phone to claim he was at work when he wasn't. He also had a documented habit of inserting himself into situations he wasn't involved in or to give himself more credit for things that he actually had. In a Vice article I found, it discusses Peter Hackett working for the police department when Flight 800 malfunctioned and blew apart in 1996 and scattered the remains of the 230 passengers on board around Long Island. Hackett would greatly exaggerate his involvement in the investigation, which was a source of embarrassment for the Suffolk County Police Department. After one of his depositions by the Gilbert's family attorney, John Ray, who is now representing a few more of the victims' families, when asked by reporters for Crime Watch Daily if he had anything to do with Shannon or any of the other victims' cases, Peter Hackett appeared to fake a medical episode claiming that his defibrillator went off because the light was in his eyes from the reporters' cameras. He clutches his chest. He fake falls to the ground. It's very dramatic. And when they tell him that they're going to call 911 and they start actually calling 911, he jumps up and he begs them not to. He starts grabbing onto their equipment to try to find out where they're from. And then he gets in his car and he drives away. I did find the clip for this on Facebook and I'm going to link it in the show notes as well. Mary Gilbert would end up filing a, a wrongful death lawsuit against Peter Hackett, which unfortunately would not make it to court. On July 23, 2016, Mary Gilbert arrived at the residence of her daughter, Sarah, who had called her for help, stating that she was hearing voices. When Mary entered the residence, she was stabbed multiple times with a kitchen knife by Sarah, then beaten and sprayed with a fire extinguisher sarah had a long-standing history of mental illness and had been previously diagnosed with schizophrenia i am sure that this whole ordeal with shannon did not help situations Um, she had been arrested previously after mary had turned her in for drowning a family pet and had lost custody of her son to mary sarah was found guilty of murder in 2017 and sentenced to 25 years and is still incarcerated There's still ongoing dispute between Suffolk County Police and Cherie Gilbert on whether Shannon's death is connected to the other Gilgo Beach murders. Even though the search for her led to the discovery of the other remains, her cause of death and her autopsy was ruled as undetermined. The Gilbert family attorney, John Ray, had retained an independent medical investigator to conduct another autopsy of Shannon, who found that her hyoid bone was deformed. He did not have access to her soft tissue. It had been boiled away soon after the initial autopsy, which is common medical practice. So he wasn't able to make a definitive determination of her cause of death. He did feel that homicide could not be ruled out as a cause of death for a few reasons. According to the source material, she was found face up rather than face down, which he felt meant that she had not drowned. Her belongings were not directly with her. They had been strewn around the area, which suggested that she had been carried to the location where she was ultimately found. Suffolk County would say that they did not find any drugs in her system, though. I just want to point that out. John Ray, the attorney for the Gilbert family, was quoted in a source as believing that there was police cover-up and poor investigation practices into the Shannon Gilbert case. One source I read cited concern that former police chief John Burke may have deliberately slowed down the investigation into Shannon's case. Burke ended the FBI's involvement with a Long Island serial killer case in February of 2012, shortly after he took the position of police chief. On December 14, 2012, a man named Christopher Loeb, a man on probation, was arrested for violations of that probation at his mother's home in Smithtown, New York. When they conducted a search of his residence, they discovered multiple stolen items, which included items stolen from Police Chief John Burke's police-issued SUV. These items included his gun belt, ammunition, a box of cigars, a humidor, a canvas bag that contained clothes, toiletries, and other items. One source would describe Loeb telling investigator that those other items included hardcore porn and sex toys. However, according to a statement from the United States Attorney General's office, Burke was allowed to enter the Loeb residence while the search was being conducted, and he took that canvas bag, which means it didn't go into evidence, so we don't have documentation of what was in there. He didn't stop there, though. He then drove to where Loeb was being interrogated at the 4th Precinct of Suffolk County's police department in Smithtown. Burke entered the interrogation room and began to assault Loeb, who was handcuffed and chained to the floor, punching and kicking him in the head and body. This is fucked up. During this assault, one of the detectives involved allegedly told Loeb that he was going to rape his mother, according to one source, and Burke allegedly threatened to murder Loeb with a hot shot, which is a fatal dose of tainted heroin that might appear to be self-inflicted. Burke then worked with others to cover up the assault, pressuring detectives that had been witness to it to stay quiet. The FBI and U.S. Attorney General's office would open an investigation into the assault in 2013. Burke called detectives to Suffolk County Police Department headquarters in Yawfank, New York, and was able to get detectives to agree to give a false episode of events. One of these detectives would even falsely testify under oath in the pretrial hearing, denying that the assault on Loeb had happened. Burke would end up being charged and sentenced to 46 months in prison for obstruction of justice and assault. Geraldine Hart, who would become Suffolk County Police Commissioner in 2018, would tell 48 Hours in an interview that the FBI leaving the case in 2012 did hinder the investigation into the Long Island serial killer. The FBI would rejoin working on the case in 2015. This is my opinion. If he covered up all of that, I have no doubt that there's potential for other aspects of cover-up. I'm just saying. Some of the online speculation... Regarding the cover-up of Shannon Gilbert's case has to do with Burke working with Dr. Peter Hackett in the Suffolk County Police Department. They knew each other. There's other sources that I read about other very prominent people in Suffolk County government that are connected to this case and these people. So if you want to do some digging into that, go for it. The assault case was not the only crime John Burke has a tie to. This one I haven't looked too much into, but it was mentioned in one source, and that source said that John Burke was the key witness in another Long Island murder case, the murder of 13-year-old John Pius Jr. when Burke was 14, which led to the conviction of four high school-aged boys. His testimony would implicate them in the bullying and then murder of Pius Jr. by stuffing rocks down his throat asphyxiated him. The prosecutor in that case would later become Suffolk County District Attorney and would play a key role in Burke becoming police chief years later. It's worth noting, however, that both the Suffolk County District Attorney and the FBI would decline to comment on any abuse of power in connection to the Long Island serial case by Burke. Suffolk County Police do not believe there is a connection between Shannon Gilbert's case and the Long Island serial killer. They've maintained that Shannon died because of a tragic accident occurring when she became lost in the marsh where she was found and potentially drowned. So where are we now with this case? I mentioned in the beginning there has been an arrest of Rex Herman. There's still a massive investigation ongoing as of the recording of this episode as they continue to search for evidence connecting him to the victims. Here's what we do know. I've already mentioned the cell phone data. When the Gilgo Beach victims were found, they found female hair that didn't match the victims on three of the four sets of remains one of the sets of remains did have a male's hair on it the hair was sent for testing at a lab separate from the suffolk county crime lab on july 31st 2020 the hair was submitted for further dna analysis which generated a dna profile Huerman was identified as a suspect in amber castello's case in march of 2022 after being linked to the truck seen passing her apartment that green chevy avalanche that had been parked in her driveway Kureman had a Chevy Avalanche registered to his name, which he would transfer to his brother. They began investigating cell phone records and credit card history, as well as other things at this point. They were able to tie purchases made by Rex Herman's American Express card at the same time in the same locations of those burner phone calls to the victims. They were also able to track credit card purchases at the same locations at the time where the voicemails were being checked from victim's phone calls and the calls were being placed to Melissa Bartholomew's family from her cell phone. Hiraman also has a Tinder account that was linked to one of the burner phone's phone numbers that was paid by his American Express account. When they searched the email attached to that Tinder account, they found selfie photos that appeared to have been taken by Rex Herriman. They also found another burner email address that had conducted searches for sex workers, torture pornography, videos depicting sexual acts towards children, searches for serial killers, searches on the disappearances and murders of the Gilgo Beach Four, as well as podcasts and documentaries regarding the investigation of the case. In July 2022, a DNA profile was received from the three female hairs found on the remains of three of the Gilco Beach victims. Also in July of 2022, an undercover detective retrieved 11 bottles from the trash in front of the Hewerman home, and DNA swabs were taken from those bottles. On January 26, 2023, at this point, Huraman was under surveillance by authorities, and they retrieved a pizza box thrown out by Rex Huraman and were able to get a swab of the leftover pizza crust for DNA comparison. In March of 2023, they received results from the DNA on the bottles that had been recovered from the Huraman's home trash and matched one of the sets of the mitochondrial DNA profiles to the three hairs that were found on three of the remains believing that they belong to Rex Hurriman's wife. On May 19, 2023, Rex Hurriman is seen on camera purchasing minutes to one of the burner phones. On June 12, 2023, they received confirmation that the male hair found on the victim matched the pizza swab through mitochondrial DNA profiles. On July 13, 2023, Rex Hureman is arrested in connection to three of the four Gilgo Beach murders. Up until his arrest, he was using burner phones to continue to contact sex workers. His wife would file for divorce on July 19, 2023. He's been charged with first-degree murder and is being held without bail at Suffolk County Correctional Facility. According to a Fox News article, Rex Heuerman has gotten the attention of Dennis Rader, the self named BTK or Bind, Torture, Kills serial killer, who says he has a lot in common with Heuerman being that they were both fathers, husbands, and lived undetected in a neighborhood for a prolonged periods of time, and they were taken down in similar fashion through DNA and digital footprints. This is still a developing case as investigators are continuing to search not only in New York, but also South Carolina and Nevada for connections to more potential, potential victims. I'll be continuing to follow and maybe do some update episodes as more information comes out. This was an extremely difficult case to investigate, but I am so glad that finally, decades later, there seems to be some real progress in the pursuit of justice for these victims and their families. I hope that maybe we'll be able to identify the victims that to this day are still unknown. If you have any information regarding the death of Shannon Gilbert, the Gilgo Beach four victims, Jessica Taylor, Valerie Mack, or our yet unidentified victims, please call 1-800-220-TIPS. You can also go to the website www.gilgonews.com where you can submit an online tip on the website for the Gilgo Beach Homicide Investigation. Please don't forget that you can follow the show on your podcast platform of choice for updates when new episodes drop. You can also follow the show on the New York's Dark Side Podcast Facebook page, on Twitter and Instagram at NYDarkSidePod. You can email me at NYDarkSidePodcast at gmail.com. The full list of sources will be in the show notes and on our website, www.NYDarkSidePodcast.com. I hope you keep listening. I hope you're having a safe and Happy summer and tolerating this massive heat wave that seems to be rocking the country. And most of all, I hope you stay curious.